How fast can you run Quake? More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Quaker Olympics. Looking back at the Amstrad acquisition of Sinclair. A new web service for old hardware. Atari Lynx on the Mister. All this and our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Our first story this week is all about Quake, the hotly anticipated follow-up to Doom. Quake was released in June 1996, nearly 25 years ago. Can you believe it, John? 25 years wow. has flown by. And it took id Software, it took their first-person shooter engine from the pseudo, pseudo 3D engine of Wolfenstein and Doom into a true 3D world of polygon giblets flying all over <laughs> the screen. For many of us, it was a system breaker. 486 owners tried to resist forking out for a Pentium processor, or they cracked and they opened their wallets to enjoy Quake and other games arriving which demanded a higher system spec to achieve anything close to a good frame rate and a playable frame rate. Now, I know I was one of them, John. I'd upgraded my 486 SX25 at the time all the way up to a DX4100, pushed it to the limit at 100 megahertz. I'd put more RAM in it. It was pretty much maxed out um, as far as my budget would allow. And Quake did run on this thing. Um, the frame rate wasn't great, but if I made the window a bit smaller uh, and reduced the quality and kept the re resolution low, I could enjoy the game and I did play it through to completion. Although it might have been a bit smoother in my memories than it actually was if I go back. But you know, it, it always is. It always is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so John, what, what was your first Quake experience? Can you remember it? Well, Neil, I'm about to expose my lameness to the classic PC community once again on this show. Uh, I've never played Quake. Can you believe it? Never, ever. Wow. Um, never played Quake? Not even no. on one of the console versions? Or never. Like that? I must be wow. the only person on Earth that's never played. It's sort of like how I've never watched Titanic. Uh, you know, I'm just the, I'm, I'm the odd man out in the world. But, you know, aside from GoldenEye, uh, first-person games in general, whether they're dungeon crawlers like Dungeon Master or Eye of the Beholder or these, you know, Twitch-based deathmatch shooters like Quake, I, I don't know. They're, they're just not my cup of tea. I never sought them out. Well, I mean, it's such an iconic piece of gaming history. I think you owe it to yourself to go and give it a try. I probably should. You're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Well, the topic of Quake came up this week because the battle to create the world's highest frame rate in Quake using only a 486 PC is heating up. Yes, check your calendars. It is 2021. And the hashtag <laughs> 486 Quake Race is current and has been trending on Twitter. Retro enthusiasts have been getting their kit together to try and claim the crown, including such people as Retro Tech Bytes on YouTube, who has a great video showing off his setup and actually does a really good job of explaining the competition, why Quake was chosen for the competition and how people are approaching it. Basically, Quake was a game that runs on a 486 PC, but it really takes advantage of the strengths of the Pentium processors, namely its speed advantage and additional instructions to help with floating point calculations, which the Quake engine makes full use of. To some people, that sounded like a challenge, and so they took it up. And we saw other contenders like Sucra achieve a very respectable 16 frames per second. I mean, it doesn't sound that respectable compared to the 60 frames per second that people aim for these days, but you know that was pretty good back then. Mm -hmm. Retrotech Bytes himself managed 14 frames per second, and then upstepped user CPU Galaxy over on YouTube, who has created a video showing off 
his record-breaking computer, and he sees his Quake game running at a little over 20 frames per second. Again, really impressive for the, uh, for the 486 platform and for such a demanding game on it. His system includes an AMD X5133 CPU, overclocked to 180 megahertz, 180 megahertz 486. Uh, that's on a socket 3 board with 16 mega video memory and a Creative Blaster PCI video card. Something of a dream machine for 1996. I was, I was going to say that's 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 that system's overclocked to about twice the speed of a normal 486, right? It, it's insanely fast, and all of the different approaches people have taken. There's even somebody. I think it was um, Richard Tech Bytes himself. He used a 486 processor that was released in 2007. Oh, <laughs> it was okay. GX4100, <laughs> but they were still producing them at that point. So mm-hmm. it's not. It, it is period authentic, but at the same time, it's not. You know, right. they're, they're mixing and matching everything they can while staying within the 486 umbrella. Now, um, what is really interesting is the different approaches taken to the competition and the hardware selected, as I said. Um, you know, things like uh, looking at different results and comparing the efficiency of the CPU rather than just the raw speed, because those clocked slower are sometimes actually better performing than the, the higher clock rates. Uh, They look at the advantages of using the VLB bus for your video, which can outweigh a PCI video card sometimes. There are all kinds of variables which make this a really interesting competition for retro computer fans. And at the end of it, whether you like Quake or not, whether you're like John and you've never even played Quake (laughs) or not, um, what we will end up knowing is what the perfect 486 setup looks like uh, and what the pinnacle of 486 gaming in a computer looks like. So I'm really fascinated by this competition. Gives me flashbacks to the days when I spent far too much time tweaking and overclocking PCs instead of actually gaming on them, John. And you were a console gamer in the 90s, so did you look down your nose at us PC owners obsessing over trying to get one more frame per second out of a machine to keep it usable? Um, I, I didn't really look down my nose at you. I, I just didn't care. Um, <laughs> none of the games I was interested in playing were on PCs. It's, it's just as simple as that. Um, I think in the nineties, you, you, you didn't even acknowledge us. It's not that you didn't <laughs> <laughs> look down your nose. You just didn't acknowledge it's, us. <laughs> it's even worse. Yeah. I, you know, I think in the nineties, there was a lot more geographic stratification of genres than now. And, and it all comes back to, I guess, which continent you preferred your games to come from. Um, European and, to some extent, American studios were, by and large, doing their best work on the PC, with some notable exceptions like Rare and EA, uh, while Japanese studios were almost entirely console-centric. And uh, as a lover of Japanese-style role-playing games, action platformers, and just kind of wacky experiences in general, uh, I, I just didn't see a reason to turn on my computer other than to chat with my buddies on IRC. Uh, but I do think that there were a class of people, in fact, this class of people continues to this day, that get just as much of a thrill out of a 5% frame boost by tweaking settings as they do actually playing the games themselves. And and there's nothing wrong with that. You can enjoy that little metagame of you know maximizing your performance. What is unfortunate is when you have the uh, that, that group of people that can't enjoy the games unless they reach a specific technical threshold. You know, unless the game is running at 60 or 90 or 120 frames per second, they're like, oh, this is garbage, I can't play it. And that, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that is the problem. That's when it becomes an obsession and, and you really can go down that rabbit, rabbit hole. Um, I've done it myself. It's detrimental to your ability to enjoy games if you're not careful. I was always looking for that stutter on the screen or a bit of screen tear or anything like that that needed a pr- improving on. 
um, uh, you know, I'd even take the side off of my PC so it could be better cooled when I mm -hmm. overclocked it uh, and to stop artifacts appearing on the screen and, and just pushing it to find that balance between, oh, can I get one more frame per second without it blue screening and crashing this time? It becomes an obsession and you're right. It, it ruins your ability to play games if you uh, have a, an addictive nature and you can get hooked on it like that. You've got to really find a balance. Um, but anyway, going back to our story, if you'd like to find out more about the 486 Quake race, do check out the notes in the show notes and also um, look up the hashtag 486QuakeRace on Twitter and on YouTube to see lots of videos on the subject. Neil, one of the most high-profile acquisitions of the 8-Bit Micro Wars took place 35 years ago this week. Uh, show subreddit user Dave Velociraptor shared this tweet with us from Alan Sugar, who, uh, by the way, goes by the name Lord Sugar on Twitter, which to my <laughs> U.S. sensibility sounds unbelievably pompous, though I guess it's technically true. Anyway, uh, he tweeted about this important anniversary by sharing a picture of him and Mr. Clive at the press conference announcing the takeover. So Sinclair, who was struggling financially because of the uh, high development costs and poor sales of the ill-fated C5 electric tricycle, among other things, needed some cash. And so he sold the worldwide rights to sell and manufacture all existing and future Sinclair computers, as well as all of the intellectual property rights of the company to Amstrad. Now, Neil, I know that Amstrad was your first love as a child, but in 1986, I'm guessing you weren't aware that Amstrad was essentially playing both sides of the pitch, producing both the CPC and the Speccy, right? Uh, yeah, so um, Lord Sugar, yeah, just going back to his name, he is a lord as he has a place right. in, uh, in the House of Lords in our political system. Um, but on that subject, I did once know a guy who bought one of those five-pound plots of land. You know, you can buy a gimmicky little plot of land that you, you hang up on your wall. You get a certificate, you hang up on the wall, and you, you go, ha, ah, look at me, I'm a landowner. But this guy actually made himself a lord of his 30-centimeter his plot of <laughs> land and made people address him as lord, not even in a, in a jokey way. He used it in his day-to-day -day life. It was on his letters, on his correspondence. Oh, my gosh. You know, people called him it at work. That is pompous. That, yeah. that's <laughs> you couldn't get away with something like that in the States. Only, only in England <laughs> can you make people call you Lord. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in 1986, you know, I knew I had an Amstrad computer. I saw ZX Spectrums in the shop. I saw Amstrad Hi-Fis and computers in the shops. I wasn't paying attention to the news, so I wasn't following it that closely at the time. But I do remember seeing Sinclair's many wild projects. Um, they would get a lot of publicity. Um, and then they would fall down invariably, such as the C5 that you mentioned, that little electric vehicle, which um, with hindsight was probably about 30 years too early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not right. a bad idea, just not, not back then in 1985, 1986. I'll never forget watching the, uh, the television debut where they have all the models that are you know parading down the street on this cold, misty, rainy England morning in the open top. And you just thought, oh, my gosh. Talk about this is not the this is this is not what you want people to see right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've driven a C5 and I've driven it on the pavement, not even on the road. And just being on the pavement, sorry, the sidewalk, John, just being on the <laughs> sidewalk, um, having a bus go past you on the road is scary when you're exposed in that C5. So I can only imagine what it would be like on the road itself to be yeah. have, a, have a double decker bus brush past you is it's not good. So uh, yeah, there was a lot of television coverage. I was aware of these businessmen and their projects, but I wasn't following this acquisition that closely. I was a bit too young for that. You know, it's interesting 
to kind of consider how long Alan Sugar kept the Spectrum line going. Um, remember, the original 48K Speccy launched in 1982, and then, of course, they released the 128K in 1985. So really, there were only two actual you know, Sinclair-made Spectrum computers. The Plus 2, the Plus 2A, the B, and the Plus 3 were all produced by Amstrad. Uh, don't you think it's ironic that there were twice as many Spectrum models produced by Amstrad as there were produced by Sinclair themselves? Mm, yeah, I guess. I mean, the, the Plus 2 was the first one that Amstrad made, as you said. Um, and there were two variants of the Plus 2. I don't know if the earlier ones were made by Sinclair and were in stock or if they were all made by Amstrad. They were probably all made by Amstrad, but using an earlier Sinclair design. Because um, what Amstrad did was they, they went on to redesign the Plus 2 and they put different ports on the back, um, you know, swap things around a, a little mm -hmm. bit. And that was really designed to steer people towards Amstrad's own proprietary peripherals. You know, they did this on both the Spectrum and the CPC range. So, for example, they steered Amstrad and then later Spectrum owners um, towards the three inch floppy instead of the more copy, uh, more um, common five and a quarter or three and a half inch floppy, because he could profit on that more unusual medium rather than mm -hmm. letting users buy the more common one and, and all companies sell it. So um, he was very much of that mindset. So if you look at a plus two, you can have, there's a gray one and then there's a black one. They're both sold as a Spectrum plus two, but they've got different ports. It's um, mm. a little bit unusual. Mm -hmm. But Sinclair weren't all about the Spectrum, you have to remember. You know, they also did the Z80. They did the Z81 before that. The pocket televisions, the calculators, these were all successful products for them. And before the takeover in 94, uh, 1984 there was also the Sinclair QL and that was a huge flop it really was right. the nail in the coffin for Sinclair's computer division and if that had been a success then um, you know maybe the money would have flooded in and Sinclair computers could have continued down that line uh, but sadly it wasn't so yeah I, um, when you put it like that um, it is kind of ironic that more Amstrad models of the spectrum existed than Sinclair yes um, but, you know, that that shouldn't belittle Sinclair's achievement. No, not at all. Not at all. The, the whole thing seems almost forgotten. I mean, you, you don't see any mention of Amstrad, you know, on the on the Spectrum Next. When people think of that classic BIOS screen, they always think about the one with, you know, Sinclair Research Limited, the text on it, rather than the, the Amstrad. Um, do you think it's just a case of selective memory, some continued animosity towards Amstrad for, you know, taking their beloved computers away from, from their inventor? Or, or what, is it something else? I don't think there's much malice in it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, despite... Amstrad making Spectrums, they were all catering to that original machine specification. So yes, the later models got more RAM, uh, they got the AY sound chip, they even got a disk drive, but they all catered to the widest user base to make a profit. So software developers nearly always aimed to cater to the 48K spec ZX Spectrum. Right. So the original, there was a 16K, but that was quickly surpassed by the 48K as the standard. And any new models aimed to be backwards compatible with that. So while it had Amstrad on the tin, I think I think the soul of the computer, I think the soul was always Sinclair, and it always will be, even in the next. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, Neil, this is where I yield to your expertise. Um, in the long run, <laughs> what what do you think of this deal? Uh, you know, was it right for Lord Sugar to buy Sinclair? Uh, was it right for Sir Clive to sell? 
I don't think that Clive had a choice, really, in the being in the position that he was. Um, I think his mind was also clearly elsewhere with money being pumped into the C5 for a 1985 mm -hmm. release. So I think if that computer division hadn't gone elsewhere, it would have just ended there and then with the 128K model. Um, uh, another question might be, would anyone else have done better with the brand um, than Amstrad? The Speccy had to be low cost. That's, that's the one thing that made up for its shortcomings. It was super cheap and that aligned well, I think, with Amstrad's ethos of giving people cheap product with um, just enough bells and whistles on it to make them think it was a bit more upmarket than it actually was, mm -hmm. even if all that meant was, was a splash of paint on the case. Or uh, in the case of Amstrad Hi-Fis, they would put grooves in the plastic to make it look like the Hi-Fi was a stack system, even though it was one just one lump of molded plastic. Yeah. And Genius maneuver on the part of Amstrad. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good marketing. So right. in respect to that, Sinclair, Amstrad, it was a good fit. Amstrad also developed um, a lot of other systems from the PCW word processor. They had the CPC range. They, they made IBM PC compatibles, including that odd Amstrad Mega PC, which is the mm -hmm. Sega Mega Drive and IBM PC hybrid. So they didn't sit still in the low-cost computer development market at Amstrad. And... Um, you know, they could have continued to evolve the Spectrum platform. But to be honest, the writing was on the wall for the Speckies as the 80s came to a close. The 16 bits reigned supreme. The PCs were gathering a huge amount of momentum. Of course, you had the games consoles as well. So the fact that Amstrad continued to produce ZX Spectrums until 1992 is really quite astonishing in that climate, I think. I don't think anyone could have really expected more for the Spectrum than that. I, I think it was a good pairing. It would, of course, have been nice to see the brand used uh, a bit more, maybe a sleek black desktop PC with Sinclair on it. That would have looked nice. Well, this is definitely one we want to hear our listeners' comments on. So uh, please feel free to give your take on the Amstrad Sinclair buyout and its ramifications in the YouTube comments or in our show subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro. Neil... We've talked about the hardware on offer over at RetroRewind.ca for the past few weeks, but we've never touched on the software they have available, too. Uh, maybe you just picked up an Amiga 500 on the cheap on eBay, and after giving it a good once-over with some IPA and a toothbrush, you're, you want to make sure that the software is humming along at a good pace, too. Uh, you can update your Amiga's OS to its latest and greatest version with Amiga OS 3.1.4. Uh, aside from fixing the numerous bugs present in Commodore's last official release, uh, it adds support for all kinds of things, including larger hard drives, improved printer drivers, and a new modernized workbench. Mm, yeah, larger hard drive support is the big one for me. It's just a really quick and easy upgrade. Drop it in, upgrade, and solve all of your hard disk woes. Drop it in, and you're good to go. Yeah, yeah. So for 50 bucks, you get the 3.1.4 Kickstart ROM module and a six-disc set, including uh, install, workbench, extra storage, fonts, and locale, all of it. Uh, quite a bargain, but that's not all. Uh, if you use promo code TWIR10 in all caps at checkout, you can save 10% of on this or any order. A big thank you to RetroRewind.ca for sponsoring this week's show. FrogFind is the name of a brand new website designed for old hardware, which has been built by Action Retro, who is a demonstration of it on his YouTube channel. 
Now, of course, we had the web in the 1990s. My first web experience was with Netscape Navigator and the thrill of browsing basic web pages made up of text and static images. It was incredible. And if the web designer was really fancy, we might see things like frames used, John. Multiple Ooh, yeah. frames on a web page <laughs> and a guest book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but... Um, if you've ever tried to recreate this experience on an old Apple Mac or a vintage PC, you soon become pretty unstuck if you try and browse any further, pretty much any further than the web pages um, of the user groups that are dedicated to that platform. Old browsers just don't play well with modern web pages and services that, that fall under the banner of Web 2.0 and, and newer. And why should they? I mean, I want my modern computer to be used and I want all of that power to bring us new, exciting web experiences. So I don't expect them to work on old machines. The modern web just isn't supposed to be 30 years backwards compatible. Mm -hmm. But um, before we go on, John, what, what was the first or one of the very first web pages you can remember visiting? Well, I, I was sort of in the uh, AOL walled garden when we got the internet for the first time. I mean, the, the internet was available, but AOL did everything they could to kind of hide it from its users because yeah. they wanted to promote their uh, they, these things called keyword pages that acted like web pages that had a bunch of information on stuff, uh, you know, links to images and chat rooms and things. But AOL was able to kind of monetize those in some way by, you know, you could only access these through AOL, not through CompuServe or whatever else. So I remember going on the Beatles AOL keyword page and being blown away uh, at all the information on there. That was, I was a huge Beatles fan. I still am, but when, when we got our first modern PC, especially, and being able to just read what I thought was an infinite amount of material on the band just was incredible. But as far as the web itself, uh, I remember downloading Netscape uh, and hitting up a bunch of MIDI archive pages. That's right. Oh, I, yeah. I went straight to the MIDI. Uh, as somebody who didn't have an Amiga or even a C64, um, I never had a computer that the enthusiast crowd had kind of programmed pop tunes into, you know, either mod files or SID files or whatever. So uh, hearing this music uh, programmed through the computer really blew me away. Uh, the Christmas after we got our first internet-enabled computer, uh, I got a music creation program, which you could import MIDI files into. And I remember having all kinds of fun tweaking the songs, which were mostly by The Cure, <laughs> if I remember my <laughs> fandom timeline correctly. Uh, I, I, I put, you know, uh, pictures of you dot mid into this picture, into this program, and you can move octaves around, you can slow the tempo down, speed it up, stuff like that. I really thought I was a professional DJ remixing the song, Neil. Um, and uh, another thing, just another random memory I remember is that uh, I was a Rolling Stone subscriber at the time. And I remember they had this huge spread about cool sites on this thing called the Internet. And it's incredible to think that in 1996, you could still realistically encapsulate a pretty large portion of the web in a four-page magazine spread where you could really say, this is, this is sort of what we got going on right now. So how about you, Neil? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I mean, you could, and then you could buy directories. You could buy like the yellow pages of the internet, which right. basically all the web pages were. Yeah, things, and it was know. a physical imagine book you'd buy and you'd look something up just exactly. like you would in the paper yellow pages. Crazy. Imagine how big that would be now. Um, <laughs> although the majority of it would probably be Reddit, subreddits, and Facebook groups. That's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the topic of AOL, I just I, 
hard to fathom how many of those AOL CDs must have ended up in landfill. Oh yeah, because you used yeah. to get them through the door all day every mm-hmm. day, didn't you? And, and there were there were all kinds of pictures of people building birdhouses or you know living room furniture or whatever out of these CDs. The amount of plastic that went into those just is sort of staggering. Yeah, I tried to avoid AOL. I think my first internet provider was Demon.net. Mm. Um, but I did try AOL. Of course, I tried one of those CDs to see what it was all about. Did you have the same mail voice in America? Did you have Joanna oh. Lumley going, you've got mail? I know we had a gentleman and uh, ah. and yeah, and uh, he uh, he he said, you've got mail, uh, which uh, I believe there's a Tom Hanks movie called you've got mail that's all about yeah the the early email scene but i can't recall i i assume because literally this guy people had aol for years past when aol should have really been shown to the door in fact my father still has his main email address is still an aol email address so people held on to it for a long time but i would like to know what happened to the guy the original you've got mail guy because his voice was heard throughout the country for years and years Oh, such a long time now. I'm wondering if we had the guy for the mail and, and maybe it was Joanna Lumley when you logged on that just saying sort of welcome or whatever mm. it was she said. I, you know, I only used it as a trial and I just remember those bits. So maybe the listeners can correct me. And if, if that's true, it'd be interesting to know what the regional differences were for, for AOL, yeah. what the, the different voices that people might have heard. I'm surprised yeah. that they even kept the AOL branding overseas and didn't just change it to, you know, suit yeah. whatever country they were in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, my first experience is I remember using Lycos to search for things. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was also a site called Cool Site of the Day, which would just <laughs> give you a list of websites that were cool to explore. So, you know, that was a good place to go. But um, I remember in those early days, I didn't ever really browse the Internet with a destination in mind. I wasn't going online to find out a specific thing. It was more like a journey of discovery where you'd go from hyperlink to hyperlink as they were designed for just taking in the sites and seeing what other people were doing around the world you know it was a very uncommercial place to be and i enjoyed it yeah i mean remember web rings neil uh (laughs) those were the best you'd find one site about a band or a topic and then at the bottom it would say you know this site is a member of the whatever you know classic gaming web ring and then you'd click on the arrow and it would just take you to another site with the same concept and the web ring was all organized by people you know all the site owners themselves there was no such thing as the central hub like reddit or you know facebook or whatever everybody was running their own sites and of course you still had sites like geocities and stuff where they were sort of under the same umbrella but every site was completely different there was no you know graphic art style that brought them all together and that was that's what made the, the the early web really great yeah it made for quite a wild and and wacky variety of of web pages doesn't it mm-hmm. and, and designs anyway frogfind.com that we're talking about in this news story it, it doesn't try to give you a new browser to handle all of the modern aspects of the web because Of course, even if that existed, you wouldn't have the memory or the CPU power to handle that. Um, Instead, what FrogFind does is it strips out all of the modern extras from a website for you. So you lose the trackers, you lose the ads, you lose the videos that pop up and try to... You've you've won me over already, Neil. (laughs) I want to use this all the time, no matter what. (laughs) It's great. It's great. It it compresses um, any images that pop up on the screen uh, to, to make them viewable. Um, it makes everything much smaller and it makes it work on old computers, of course, and whatever old browser you want to use. So you just load up your old browser and you go to frogfind.com and you go from there. And I visited the BBC website to check out the news via Frogfind. And um, 
I did it on my on my modern computer. You don't have to use an old computer. So just jump on your browser now. Well, well we're still playing. Don't close us off. <laughs> and uh, visit frogfind.com. And um, what it gave me on the BBC News site was just text broken down into stories, just neatly laid out, no images. I could click on the top story. And at the top of that story, it said view page images one. So I could choose to look at the image associated with that story rather than it automatically loading, which is great for an old computer. Um, the image was compressed. It was nice and small when I did click on it. And it was very much like the old days of the web, John. It was, I would describe it as a peaceful web browsing experience. It just seemed to work really well. Just the text that you want, just the pictures if you wanted to see them. It, it's a joy to use even on a modern browser. <laughs> Right, right. And you know, something I just thought about is this, this could be a real boon for people using modern computers that have accessibility issues, you know, people that need to alter the size of the text on the screen or use screen reader programs. I bet it's a lot easier to highlight text, you know, and you can highlight a whole web page, basically, have it be read to you without it, you know, reading you any alt text from images and stuff like that. So a lot of a lot of promise beyond the classic computing thing. But we are a classic computing show. So I've got to know, Neil, did you try it out on any old hardware? I did, I did. And the accessibility argument is a, a very interesting one, actually, because um, it's topical because in, this, in, in the news this week, we had the National Rail website mm. decided to make their whole website grayscale um, <laughs> out of respect for the death of the Duke here in the UK. Oh, okay. But it resulted in thousands of complaints from people with accessibility needs who could no longer use the website because it was really difficult if you were partially sighted to oh. make out the differences. So it was a real shot in the foot. And um, I'm not sure it was a particularly respectful move in the in the first place. <laughs> but the mm. Duke of gone, oh, well, I feel yeah honored that you made your website grayscale for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't get that either, but <laughs> anyway, um, Action Retro in his video, he demonstrates this. So I didn't, I haven't actually tried it on an old system yet, but he demonstrates it really well on his video uh, on a Macintosh Plus running at 8 megahertz using Mac Web 1.1. This machine can't even load Netscape. Uh, and on Mac Web, uh, he browses the Ars Technica homepage. It takes about 20 seconds to load, but then it gives him full access to all of the news stories and it even formats the text into bullet points and lays out the article. So it is perfectly usable. And then to take it a step further, you have to see this. He fires up an Apple II from a floppy disk and he goes on to read the Wikipedia, Wikipedia article about the Apple II on the machine itself. It's wonderful. Yeah, I was shocked at how quickly the Apple II was able to render, you know, maybe render is a wrong word, but to load up web pages. I mean, when he was searching, you know, his search results came up just like that. I guess he was using Contiki which is a, a sort of a program that you can use to uh, to get into the internet on various old you know systems and uh, very very impressive you know this is just in line or this is just in time with all of the new uh, Wi-Fi peripherals that have come out in the past couple of years for classic systems. Uh, a few months back, we did a story on the FujiNet, which is a box that lets you easily get your Atari 8-bit computer online. Um, I don't know what the browser situation is like on that system, but I'm going to be checking it out soon. Well, you can use FujiNet with any existing browser. It just gives you that network connection, and then right. you can use it with your existing old-school browsers. So, yeah, and, and I think the Apple II is so quick compared. It's actually quicker than the um, than the Mac um, mm -hmm. 
because it's just loading one page of text at a time, where the, mm. whereas the Mac was trying to load in all of the text from that web page. That makes where, sense. Yeah, but with the Apple II, it loads one screen, you press a button, it loads the next screen of text. So it was even quicker on an Apple II, which is <laughs> bizarre, bizarre. Maybe anyway, that, can be your next, that can be your next video. Is the Apple II the fastest Mac? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's amazing that FrogFind or a similar service hasn't been created before. To be honest, we've been crying out for something like this. I'm so glad that it exists and huge props to Action Retro for making this service for us. And FrogFind will be the first website that I hit now every single time I fire up an online retro computer. Neil, we all love our Amigas. Whether it's the A500 Batman pack that you got for Christmas or the A1000 you painstakingly restored, like the one right behind me right now. Uh, but sometimes you want to get a quick Amiga fix and you're not always in a position to drag out your wedge and fiddle with your old 1084. Amiga forever to the rescue. <laughs> fiddle with your old 1084. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, that's right, John. Amiga Forever is the fastest, easiest way to emulate our beloved Amiga on the PC. It comes with everything you need, all of the Kickstart ROMs, a variety of pre-built workbench environments, all legal, of course, and a full mm -hmm. library of games to play with a single click. That's right. Everything is 100% licensed from the kickstarts to each one of the games. So if you acquired your games through somewhat less than official channels back in the day and would like to mend your ways and show some love to the teams that created these works of gaming art, Amiga Forever is the way to do it. If you're looking to get some Amiga action in while you're listening to This Week in Retro, head over to AmigaForever.com and we thank them for sponsoring this week's episode. Neil, this week, Dave Velociraptor over on the subreddit is two for two in stories. Fire. Yeah. Uh, he clued us in on an article from AtariGamer.com that the Atari Lynx core for the Mr. FPGA computer has been released. Now, Neil, how big of a deal was the Atari Lynx back in the day in England? Um, it got the hype here. It got the marketing mm -hmm. and it got the TV ads. And uh, I went down to the store to see one in action. It was out of my budget, John, but... Um, mm -hmm. Having felt underwhelmed by the Game Boy when that came out, I mean, mostly to its limited screen. You know, I right. loved the, the idea of some of the games on there, but the screen just killed it for me. I remember being distinctly impressed by the Lynx, um, certainly in that very controlled store environment where the screen looked good. I enjoyed it. And the game that I saw running was Blue Lightning. And of course, I love my flight sims. <laughs> so, so that really <laughs> appealed to me. It's not a flight sim, but it had a plane in it. And... Um, <laughs> What impressed me was the scaling effects that were taking place. You know, th this little handheld was really doing the kind of things I'd expect to see on a Mega Drive or on a Super Nintendo on that little screen. So that made for a very good first impression for me. How about you? Yeah, I remember hearing about the Lynx when it first came out, and I even have some hazy memories of seeing it in the Kmart and the, the shops around here. But it was such a hard sell against the Game Boy by the time that it was released in terms of price, uh, the game library, and most crucially, uh, the battery life. Now, the, the game library was good, don't get me wrong, but the amount of games, just that there was just such a flood of titles coming in on the Game Boy that, it, you know, it was, it, was, it was difficult to beat that. But the biggest thing, of course, you know, everybody uh, will, will acknowledge that the, the Game Boy, for all of its limitations, being able to run for 10 or 12 hours on, on one set of batteries was, was the big system seller. Yeah, that was the killer. Uh, I did manage to borrow a Lynx off of a wealthy friend at, at the time for a while. Um, and uh, I don't remember ever playing it without being tethered to the wall socket for power. So <laughs> that just sums it up, really, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, um, I have played with a Lynx a few times since then, and uh, it was a very nice system. You know, f- a full color, backlit screen, uh, some excellent ports of Atari and Epix games. Uh, if it could have just come out a year or two earlier, uh, it would have definitely made some more waves. But, you know, that's that's kind of the, star- the story of everything Atari post 2600 or definitely post 5200 neil has there ever been a company with more promise that was just more constantly behind the times than atari yeah i mean you mentioned the 2600 um and the and and the other early consoles there in defense of atari like you say let's not forget how far ahead of the time they were originally along with magnavox and fairchild back in the 70s they were the pioneers of the home games consoles back then uh, and they came out on top in that battle. There's no dispute in that. Um, but a tech company is only ever really a few short steps from total failure. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It only takes a couple of duff releases to bring the whole house of cards down. And that's what we saw with the Lynx, with the Jaguar, with the Falcon. It just wasn't working out for Atari with those releases. Um, yeah, they were. you could argue they were struggling before that, but it just took a few nails uh, you know, to, to bring everything down. I'm really mixing up my metaphors here. <laughs> a few <laughs> nails to bring down the house of cards, put them in the coffin. Um, but uh, it's not that they were on the wrong path, I think, with the, with the, ja- uh, with the links, sorry. Um, portable gaming was and has proven to be a huge market. And more powerful games, co- games consoles are a given with each generation. So, you know, they were on the right track with the Lynx. They were on the right track with the Jaguar. It just didn't come together for them. Um, it just didn't work, did it, John? No, no. So getting back to our story, uh, developer Robert Peep has released a Lynx core for the Mister. So if you're not familiar with how the Mister works, it's basically a one-board computer that has a programmable circuit called an FPGA that can be flashed with a core that emulates hardware for various kinds of computers and consoles. So some FPGA projects like the ZX Spectrum Next have cores that are maintained professionally, but with the Mister and other FPGA projects, the cores are mostly developed by hobbyists. Now, this brings me to what I think is an important question. Neil, what do you think about the commercialization of these cores? Um, because of the rise of sites like Patreon, many core developers have set up pages where you can pledge monthly amounts to fund development, while others straight up charge you for access to their cores. Uh, what do you think about this trend? Does it seem weird that people are charging for access to platforms that they had nothing to do with developing in the first place? I'm I'm not adverse to it, John, because um, if you have a patronage behind you which is entirely optional nobody's forcing you to give your support then what comes with that is a weight of responsibility on your head and and that i find gives results so if you think of all the emulators and the remakes of old game engines that you've got excited about in the past and um if you think about um developers that have lost interest in those those systems that they started writing and, and the home page for the project would just languish. You go back for an update and you'll see that this exciting remake hasn't been updated for three years and it just seems to have been forgotten about. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. So I think this gives um, people who are invested in the platform, um, it gives them a place to pledge their interest in the first place so that the mm-hmm. developer knows what the demand is. It gives it a really clear indication of demand, in fact. It rewards the developer for getting it over the finish line. And I think the fact that they didn't develop for that platform in the first place is really, it's irrelevant because it's their precious time and it's their experience that you're rewarding um, 
forgetting it over the finish line. It's it's not really linked to the fact that they didn't develop the platform in the first place. It's a show of support and um, a show that there's a demand for that platform to be continued when who else is going to do it? You know, the original company is, is, isn't around. Atari's not going to say, oh, yeah, we're going to write an FPGA core and let everyone have it. Not when they're in the business of cryptocurrency and gambling <laughs> and making money as you know any way they can. I'd much rather crowdfund it through Patreon. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I I agree with you. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it either. Um, you know, a lot of work goes into developing these cores, and even though the the developer of say the Lynx core, you know, even though he wasn't on the original development team, like you said. Um, they're bringing that core to a new audience through a new platform, and that, that requires a tremendous amount of work. Uh, I have no problem supporting these projects. One that immediately comes to mind is the uh, Tandy Color Computer 3 core from a guy named Roger Taylor. Uh, it significantly improves on the other Coco core that's available, and in my mind, uh, it was well worth the $5 price tag. Uh, Neil, have you seen any cores out there on Patreon that you think are worth supporting? Um, well, aside from Robert, who's doing this great job with the links, um, there are so many people out there doing a great job. Uh, I'd probably pick out um, a guy who goes by the name of Jotago. Um, they published the Capcom CPS core, uh, Ghosts and Goblins, and a whole lot more like that. And it's always those arcade boards that draw me back into FPGA and, and also to emulation. In fact, it's the experience of playing a system that I, there's no way I could have owned back in the time. Um I'm very unlikely to be able to own now because it's very expensive to get a hold mm -hmm. of some of these classic arcades. And to be able to play that bona fide version of the game, not a port on a home micro, but the arcade, that's what Jotago's putting out there. And that's that's what excites me. I've always loved that pure, real arcade experience. And doing it through FPGA is just brilliant. It's just peak for me. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. Jotego does great stuff. And, of course, congratulations to uh, Robert Peep on the release of the Lynx Core. And if you'd like to support him, check out his Patreon page, which we've linked to in the show notes. Now, John, we come on to the community question of the week. I'm going to have to ask for your help on reading these ones out because I had a bit of an accident yesterday. I knocked my laptop onto the table, hence why I'm performing the show using the bullet points on the paper here. <laughs> hidden by the laptop in front of me for those watching the video. So I can't actually get onto Reddit to read the uh, answers today. So if you've got that up, the community question of the week from last week was, what do you think is the most valuable British video game? We were talking about uh, the, the six, was it $600,000 sale of yes. Super Mario last week. So we were trying to figure out what is the most valuable British video game. So John, what did our subreddit users have to say? All right. Well, we got lots of we got lots of responses here. The uh, most upvoted answer was a mint condition sealed first edition of Elite by Acorn Soft. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, I mean it's it's a classic. It will always be a classic in the history of video games, microcomputer video games. It was a game that just blew us all away with the sheer size of it, using that that special uh, set of mathematics and seeding an entire universe in a in a tiny amount of space. And um, I, whether that converts to value, I don't know. Does anyone say how much that goes for? No, in fact, nobody that responded to this question actually put dollar figures up. So my guess is that they were just thinking in their minds, you know, if they could choose any game and, and, and try and flip it on eBay or put it up for auction, that's what, they, that's what they'd use. Well, it deserves to be valuable. I agree. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Tricky VFR 800. Oh, I'm sorry. And if, if I didn't say before, Bomb Jack submitted that first one. T- Tricky VFR 800 says a complete and playable Minor Willie meets the tax man. Now, I am not familiar with this game, Neil. What, what, what's the deal with this? This is a fabled game that that never came out. Um, mm. So uh, Matthew Smith, who wrote Jet Set Willie, very famously um, burnt out in a big way and just vanished from the video game scene. And there was great anticipation for the follow-up game, which was Minor Willie Meets the Taxman, and and it never came. So if if Matthew Smith wrote this and it came back, uh, yeah. Uh, he should do like the Wu-Tang Clan did with their album a couple of years back. They, they, they only made one copy of their new album and sold it for several million pounds. So he, he could make the game and just make one copy of it, and then it would be worth a fortune. So, mm. Matthew Smith, Wu-Tang, your next game. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a tagline. Um, and finally, Pajaco6502. Uh, he actually this is he actually owns these games in question. He says, hopefully my copies of the original recalled Snapper or Defender for the BBC Micro. So uh, I guess Snapper had its graphics changed and it was re-released, which is kind of crazy for that to happen. Uh, Defender was changed to Planetoid, of course, probably for naming reasons, and was re-released. Have you played uh, Snapper on uh, uh, for the micro, Neil? Snapper. Um, is that the Pac-Man clone? I can't remember I'm, now. I'm, yes, it is. It is the Pac-Man clone. And looking... At the original graphics here, uh, Pajaco has posted a link uh, on on the Reddit. Uh, it definitely <laughs> let's, let's say it's a it's a loving tribute to Pac Man. <laughs> yeah, it's very I've accurate. Heard, I've heard stories with the Acorns um, because it was sixty five oh two based. The BBC. I've heard mm-hmm. stories of arcade boards being reverse engineered to get the game logic out of them rather than writing the game. No proof. Right. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if they also found a way of ripping graphics out of boards and, and just pairing that up with the code they'd ripped out. Very naughty, but um, they obviously got caught out on that occasion and had to change things. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you, as always, to all of our subreddit uh, users for submitting their uh, their responses. This week's community question of the week is related to our frog find story. And it is, what was your first experience with the Internet? Uh, please post your responses on the show subreddit and uh, upvote your favorites. We'll read the top three most upvoted responses on next week's show. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.